what is the source of wars and fights among you? Now we're in Judges, but James 4, 1 says, what is the source? What's the origination? Where does it begin? You've got these fights, you've got these wars, conflicts. Where does it start? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire, you crave, you have that wanting and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. So you take someone's life, you want to take other people's stuff, you still can't obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. There's just a very simple principle right there, right? Just some of the fights in your life, your relationships with your kids and with your spouse, and maybe even with your parents and extended family, is because you don't talk, you don't communicate your desires, you immediately start taking, grabbing. You do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, if you know James there, James is responding to a lot of conflict, conflict about teaching, conflict about knowledge, and they're fighting, and if I was writing, I'd be, I'd be tempted to just say, cut it out. I would say sources, I would say wars and fights. Stop it. Next verse, please. <laughs> Number two. But God's wisdom, and that's what James is, God's wisdom isn't mere moralism, isn't mere behaviorism. God's wisdom addresses the actions, but also dives to the heart of the matter. And at the heart is our passions that wage war within us, our internal desires, external conflict. External conflict comes from internal conflict. That's what he's saying. The source of your external conflict is your internal conflict. Your internal desires. Fights with others stem with fights in our hearts. And this imagery that James is using is military imagery to picture desires at war desires that are encamped and entrenched and established in our hearts that fighting trench warfare stuck back and forth now with that in your mind let's look at Samson again Judges 15 Judges 15, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath a, a chair. If you don't have one at all, take it home with you, okay? If, so if you're picking up for the first time, you're like, I have no clue where Judges is. You just start going Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Kings, Chronicles. That's in the first, like, fifth of your Bible. Um, here we go, Judges 15. Later on, during the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat as a gift and visited his wife. 
Uh I want to go to my wife in her room, he said, but her father would not let him enter. I was sure you hated her, (laughs) her father said. So I gave her to one of the men who accompanied you. All right. Isn't her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Why not take her instead? All right, let's catch up with the story, okay? What is happening? Samson has ordered his parents to get him a foreign wife. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him when he's going to meet her at some point, and he tears this lion apart with his bare hands. And then he throws a seven-day drinking bout. The Philistines respond with sending 30 men to protect him, you know, just watch him, really, for seven days. And while he's doing this, he gives them a riddle about something they'll never figure out because it's about the lion. After killing it, he comes back later, and there's honey in the lion's dead carcass, and he picks it up, and he scoops, and he eats it, and they can't figure that out. And so they're frustrated. So they threaten her, his wife, brand new wife. Threaten her. We're going to burn you and your family. And so she starts trying to figure out the riddle. Samson, you won't, you won't tell this, you won't tell this. So he's like, I won't even tell my parents. They're like, well, that's, there's something wrong there. What kind of marriage is this? But she finally nags, him out, nags it out of him, and the, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him again. And he kills 30 men to pay the bet off. No one can tell Samson how to find a wife. And Samson seems to think his actions have no consequences. All right? I'm going to run through a little profile of a person today, and you're going you're gonna to nudge someone. All right? There's people in your life, maybe you, that act as if, their choices, their decisions have no consequences. Because he's, he's the angry person who flies off the handle, handle, leaves, comes back, and acts like nothing has happened. He's like, I'd like to see my wife. I brought her a goat. <laughs> and the dad's like, uh, do you remember how you left? <laughs> do you remember? The riddle, the nagging. You called her a cow, and then you ran out and killed 30 men. If that's not an annulment, Samson, I don't know what is. Like, what are you doing, Samson? Oh, you want to hang out? Okay, I'm sorry, no. And then the second part, the father's like, no, I already gave her to one of your friends. (laughs) Like, wait, what? And then he doubles down in the mind of a Philistine, just to make clear this isn't a good mind, but in the mind of a Philistine, he's like, what about my other daughter? And he's like, she's more beautiful. Won't that placate you? Woo! Escalation is what this is. What we see here is this vicious cycle of retaliation. And escalation, at the end of the day, essentially, I lose, so we all going to lose. That's what escalation is. It's that mentality. Oh, I'm going to lose? We're all going to lose. You're going to come at me. I'm going to come at you. Oh, this is No, let's keep going. Because I'm not going to relent where I lose and let you win. No, if I'm going to lose, we're all going to lose. Samson said to them in verse 3, This time I will be blameless when I harm the Philistines. So he went out and caught 
300 foxes. He took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, put a torch between each pair of tails, then he ignited the torches, released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned the piles of grain and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Without guilt. He's saying, I'm justified in this. So uh, you, you hear a profile, or at least you hear some similarities with maybe yourself. Someone who can fly off the handle, leave, come back, and act as if nothing has happened. Someone who can justify their actions always based on what's been done to them. Oh, I'm going to do this. Like he's already saying I'm, guilt I'm guiltless for what he's about to do. He's saying, I'm already justified for the evil action I'm about to take. You took my wife, I'll take your economy. Now, how? How? Can we slow down and imagine this? What is, how did you do this? The, the quick succession of verbs in Hebrew writing makes it seem that this it, it's trying to get off the maybe the point that that this had no problem for him it's so quick and in succession that it it was easy you see it boom 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 he does it all it's like no problem for him but can we just slow down and imagine this he catches 300 foxes he ties their tails together does he have a cage for the other 298? Is he in such a rage that he's just picking up as he goes? And I caught this one, caught this one, torch, got some. And he's just going to go, like, I don't know how he's doing this. But, but what I do know is he's got some time. Meaning, he's thinking. I assume he's brewing in anger, thinking about his wife, thinking about her family who's just been killed thinking about their death. And, and like Jesus, seeing the mockery and injustice of the temple, he's against that. He's angry. And, and you, you get that imagery. Like Jesus, he sees the mockery, the injustice of the temple, and what does he do? He leaves and he stews. Means he thinks about what he's against. He's thinking about the dishonor that they're bringing to his father's house, and he slowly, methodically makes a whip so he can go back in and clean it out. And th that's what's happening here with with Samson. That anger prompts him to action. That's what anger does. It prompts us to action. The question always is, is it righteous anger? Are you angry about what God's angry about? Are you angry about what the devil's angry about are you angry about what god's angry about are you angry that you're not getting what you want like what is your anger actually about what are you actually against is it righteous is it unrighteous and then after if you can discern if it's righteous you have to discern is, is how am i expressing this i mean jesus he has that anger righteous anger of what they're doing to his father's house but then how he expresses it is righteous Samson there's righteous anger there 
he sin? There's consequences for a sin, but they have murdered his family. And he's brewing in anger, but then how does he express it? Now, you could undercut me and say, well, God's using all this for his glory. He's using Samson. This is all part of God's. Yes, that, that doesn't mean you get to justify thinking that Samson's the hero of the story, so you should be like Samson. Do you hear me? If this was Aesop's fable, the moral of the story would, don't be like Samson. That would be it. There, there's, no, there's not like, this, oh, this redeeming quality about him. Other than he does mighty works, but it's not his strength. It's the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him so he can do this, so that can God can accomplish his plan of interrupting the comfort that the Israelites have with the Philistines, where God said, no, there should be no comfort there. There should no be friendship there. There should no be relationship where you begin to intermarry with them and you begin to worship their gods, and now you're not distinct as my people, but you look like everyone else. No, 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 no. But for Samson, it's his anger is, you've acted like this, so I'll get revenge. I'll get revenge on you, and afterwards, I'll, I'll quit. But <laughs> he says that here, like he's going to be done. But does Samson really think the vicious and escalating cycle of retaliation and violence can be broken with one more final act of violence? Does he really believe that? I think he does because that's how he ends his life. On that, one commentator says it this way. Samson always acts as if each destructive action will be the last. Do you hear me with your desires? The last time I feed this addiction, the last time I give in to this, the last time I say yes to that desire. Now this will be it. One final time, then I'll be done. One big blowout, and then I'll be done. Our wars and fights are sourced in our internal desires, our passions. Well, what are these passions? Well, broadly, desires that war within us broadly fall into two categories, evil desires and inordinate desires. Evil, inordinate. What are evil desires? Well, I don't have a problem with calling evil, evil. Let's be honest. The world won't, won't even say that evil is maybe a thing. There's such thing as evil. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I've done it myself. Evil desires include sexual lust, greed, envy, dominance, hate, murder, Evil desires include covetousness, arrogance, radical autonomy, where no one can tell me anything, I do what I want. That's evil desires, but inordinate desires are where we, that's, for us, I think we can see those and mark them out, discern those. What's harder often for us is these inordinate desires that are good desires that are out of order, they're too important. 
they were good desires, but then they begin to rule us, and so they're terrible desires. We just don't want something. We want it too much. We got to have it. We want it too desperately. And when we don't get it, we fight and claw and war to get it. So inordinate desires include not the evil things. It includes acceptance and comfort and peace and healthy relationships. Those are good desires, right? It's a good desire. If you walk into a terrible place and you would like to be a little bit comfortable, you know, like if it was 20 degrees in here this morning, yeah, it's a good desire to be like, hey, you guys, <laughs> you turn on the heat sometimes? Yeah, it's a good desire. Good desire for healthy relationships and friendships and community, reciprocation. Good desire for food and drink and love and communication. They're good desires, but they become inordinate when they become demands. They rule us. The desire for, let me just give you a few examples. The desire for food is a good thing, but the desire can become a demand, an idol, where we must have food to comfort us. Instead of ruling the desire, the desire rules us. The desire for healthy communication in your marriage or with your kids, with your friends, or in your workplace is good. But it becomes inordinate when we must have it. And when a desire transforms into a demand and the other person doesn't give us our demand, what do we do? I judge them and punish them. I don't know what you do. Maybe not physically hurt them, but we punish them with, with silent treatment, the cold shoulder, the cold distance. Or we punish them more with the attacking, not the withdrawing, but the attacking insults, name-calling, with sarcastic put-downs. Because they didn't give us our idol, because they didn't give us what we demanded, and so we pour out our wrath on them. It's a good desire. But now they're problematic. Do you hear me? So just because it started off as good doesn't mean it's still good. You actually have to evaluate, has this gone too far? Do I love this too much? Think about parents. When parents demand peace and quiet and their kids interrupt them, they get angry and lash out because their kids are disrupting their idolatry. Parents are getting their desires, and their desires have turned into demands, so now they judge and punish. If I had the desire for peace and quiet in my house and I don't get it from my kids, I don't necessarily punish them. I'll probably act with them differently. But if I demand it and they interrupt it, there's going to be, shall I say it, ungodly consequences. In his book, Pursuing Peace, Robert Jones states the list of these desires is endless. He puts it this way, we can demand from others affection, attention, approval, admiration, acceptance, and appreciation. And that's just a list that starts with A. <laughs> that's what he does. When we demand these things, conflict will surely arise. So think with me about your most recent conflict or the one you're in now because of the drive here. What were the evil desires in your heart that brought about this conflict? 
What were the inordinate desires that we become demands that cause this conflict? The conflict continues with the Philistines responding in verse 6. They ask, who did this? Who wiped out our economy? Who wiped out our grain? Who wiped out our olives? Who wiped out our vineyards? They were told it was Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because he took Samson's wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines went to her and her father and burned them to death. And Samson told them, because you did this, I swear that I won't rest until I've taken vengeance on you. He tore them limb from limb and then went down and stayed in the cave at the rock of Ephraim. fables don't be like Samson's but this is a Yahweh document and so what he's showing us is that the rescuer is as corrupt as you can imagine you thought that local stories in the past in Judges 1 and 2 were bad when it was like just a little city But then it's got worse because now it's the whole country. But now it's gotten worse because it's now the actual rescuer who's supposed to rescue us from oppression. Now he has adopted the Philistine ethic. He looks just like a Philistine himself. Why can't I say that? Because he's picked up their ethic. Their ethic is do unto others as they have done to you. Right? That's what they just said. That's their ethic. That's what you did. We're going to get back. And he's picked up that same mentality. He's adopted the same mentality. He's like, okay, yeah, yes retaliation that's the ethic that's our ethic then the philistines went up camped in judah raided lehi so the men of judah said why have you attacked us they replied we have come to tie samson up and pay him back for what he did to us you see the retaliation the back and forth you know the the story maybe of the 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 movie about the end of the spear the tip of the spear where the missionaries go into that place and that little society that was so pulled away from the rest of the world, saw so much infighting and war in the tribal setting. Why? Because retaliation was the ethic. If you kill a member of our tribe, we kill a member of your tribe, maybe too. We don't just go eye for eye. We'll ante up. Because what do we believe? We think if we'll do one more act of violence, it'll be the final thing. This will actually be the thing that stops it. We'll do it so hard, we'll do it so final to them that they'll relent. Then what do they do? Don't relent, they retaliate. And you're thinking about tribes, you're thinking about wars, pull it back into your own life, you do the same thing. Then 3,000 men of Judah went to the cave at the Rock of Edom. And they asked Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines rule us? What have you done to us? Here's the ethic. I have done to them what they did to me. Mm. Other thing I'll just say about that, I do have kids. You know what that sounds like? My kids. Samson, again, seems just like a rebellious, 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 childish man-child, right? All the power, but no love, no self-control. 
they said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. And Samson told them, swear to me that you yourselves won't kill me. No, they said, we won't kill you, but we will tie you up securely and hand you over to them. So they tied him up with two new ropes and led him away from the rock. You feel the weight of that? That 3,000 men? An army of Judah goes up against Samson. Rather than fighting the enemy, they tie up their rescuer and deliver him to the enemy. They would prefer to deliver their fellow brother, their fellow countrymen into the hands of the enemy and live, continue to live under the enemy's <coughs> domination than fulfill the mandate of Yahweh that God had given them to occupy the land and drive out the idols and the idolaters. They love safety too much. They desire ease too much. Yeah, it was a good desire. It's become inordinate. Where would you rather live in slavery than have to fight for victory? You'd rather be dominated by that sin. You'd rather be dominated by that way of thinking than have to go to war for your heart and life. Where is that? That you've maybe given up and taken the seemingly easy route, not really knowing what you're doing, not really knowing what the long route is. Where would you rather live in slavery than have to fight for victory? them over. In verse 14, when Samson came to Lehi, the Philistines came to meet him, shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him, and ropes that were on his arms, new ropes, not old, janky ropes, new ropes that were on his arms and wrists became like burnt flax and fell off. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand, took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've piled them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone and named that place Jawbone Hill. Interesting fact about Jawbone Hill they weren't on a hill. I think we most often assume, right, most fights, often fights happen on hills, and then we name them those hills, right? Put a name and say hill. There's no hill here. What he's referencing is the hill of bodies he has just accumulated. And he says, job on hill. And kind of sings and does a little dance and rolls out. Now, scripture tells us fresh jawbone. Why? That's an interesting point, right? A fresh jawbone. Well, probably because you know that fresh jawbones are not hardened like old bones are, right? So it kind of makes this feat more miraculous, more amazing. Who takes a soft 
new bone and kills a thousand men with it. Like I can, I can maybe get my mind wrapped around like something old and hardened by the sun and maybe you shaped a little bit and you went to town, but, but then also probably because of this, that Samson again does not care about his Nazarite vow. Fresh jawbone means a dead, recently dead donkey, which means another carcass, which means another breaking of the Nazarite vow. Two carcasses and a seven-day drinking bout. That, that's his resume that we've known of him thus far, not to mention the ladies. But the things with the Nazarite vow, explicitly, he's broken both of them. Pragmatism rules for Samson. Really, his desires for vengeance, that's what's ruling him. But when he needs a weapon, he doesn't care about God's claim on him. Pragmatism wins, not God. When he needs something, he doesn't care about God's claim on him. Verse 18, he became very thirsty and called out to the Lord. You have accomplished this great victory through your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So God split a hollow place in the ground at Behi, and water came out of it. After Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. That is why he named it Hakor Spring, which is still in Lehi today. And he judged Israel 20 years. Here's a new phrase for us in this book. In the days of the Philistines. Samson, crazy gifted, lacking fruit. Crazy gifted. With the gifts of the Spirit, seriously lacking in the fruit of the Spirit. And that, that might be hard. I think that's probably the hardest point of this. I've heard a few questions from you throughout this week, a few weeks. I've loved it. If you want to keep asking me your question about Samson, I'll try to address all of them. I've got a few teed up for Lucas next week, then I'll try to finish all of them next week. But I've just been gathering some tension and some questions. I'm not going to resolve it all, because right now what we know about Samson is this. He's impulsive and unteachable. He's crazy gifted and he's lacking fruit. We know people like this. Leaders and thinkers and pastors whose gifts have outpunted their character. What is kind of wild is it seems like in America, I haven't thought about this too much. In America, it seems like we've gotten good at this. We've got good at producing leaders that are really crazy gifted, but their gifts outpunt their character. And what happens? They soar for five years. They soar for ten years. And then they crash and burn because gifts outpunting your character is setting you up to lose the game at the end of your life, if not now. First Corinthians shows us it's possible to have amazing gifts. Amazing gifts. 
and yet lack the fruit of love. Tim Keller writes it this way. So we will at times in scripture come across men and women like Samson who have great gifts but seem very shallow in holiness and character. And 1 Corinthians 13 means that we should be aware of this in ourselves too. The gifts of the Holy Spirit can operate in us even mightily and we can be helping people and leading movements yet our inner personal lives can still be a complete wreck. My illustration is a leader that came to your mind. I don't need to illustrate this. The leader that came to your mind over the past five years, ten years, twenty, I can give you one in the past year. I could give you six in the past year. Crazy gifted. Didn't cultivate their heart at all. Didn't cultivate their character at all. So don't get it twisted. Don't look at your gifts to justify your maturity. Did you hear me? Don't look at your gifts to justify your maturity. Your gifts may be phenomenal, out of this world, tearing line to pieces kind of stuff, and you have the character of Samson. Just because you're crazy gifted doesn't mean your heart is weak, insecure, and immature. So again, Tim Keller, in that same vein, he adds this helpful metric. He says, our prayer life, rather than our religious activities, is the best indicator of spiritual health. Instead of saying, look at my gifts, look at my actions, look at what I've accomplished, this means I'm mature, this means I'm growing, this means I'm sanctifying. Look at your prayer life and see, is your relationship with the Father warm? Is your conversation with him warm and choiceful and regular and intimate? And if it's not, that's where you need to be discerning your maturity, not in your gifts. Is your prayer warm, enjoyable, consistent? Are you not only talking, but you're listening and learning? Or like Samson, do you only pray as a last resort? This is the only time we see Samson cry up to this point. And what does he cry out? Not to be relieved from oppression from the Philistines, like every other rescuer has cried out for. What he cries out for is water. I'm thirsty. Another desire. that how your prayer is? Last resort, only for yourself and your own desires. And let's be clear about one more thing about Samson. Lone ranger disciples set themselves up for failure. The aloneness of Samson sets themselves up for failure. Intimate fellowship is the best way to ensure the integrity of our inner and outer lives. Meaning community and real friendships that have to work with you. And you have to work on them where you don't get exposed that your gifting so outpunt your character. You actually have to wrestle with that. And in relationships, that gap actually gets closed. For Samson, it doesn't get closed. 
his individuality, his radical autonomy, his I do what I want whenever I want kind of thing. He's like a Gaston character, just kind of like marching everywhere like, I want to do this. They did this to me. Like that's, and then he writes a beautiful poetry. Not only does he not take any advice, he never works with others, never builds teams. He's a one-man wrecking crew. And that is a prescription for focusing on outward impressiveness <laughs> while suffering from internal disintegration. That's what crazy gifts, that's why we do that. Because they're impressive. our bad news of our wars and our fights and the bad news of our desires becoming demands I want you to hear explicitly the good news of Jesus that this isn't Aesop's fable don't be like Samson this is Jesus look at his desires Look at what his desires produce. Look at the passions in him that rage, not in a violent, destructive way, but in a ferocious way for you that compelled him to action, that he was so moved in that anger that I'm against the cancer of sin eroding my people from the inside out. I'm against that. So I'm going to go. I'm so against the enemy continue to deceive and twist and turn my people into more animals than humans. Uh, I'm against hopeless, despairing life that they are in. So I'm going to come moved by desires, moved by passion, moved by desires for his people to die in our place for our sin, to give us life, and to reconcile us into relationship with the Father where we're not vying for power, we're not retaliating with him, we're responding to his grace to us, and then we get to send that everywhere we go. And I don't know how it perfectly works out, but I know that Jesus submitted all of his desires to the Father submitted his life perfectly to the Father where he acted justly. He loved mercy. He walked humbly with the Father. And while our desires ascend the throne of our hearts, remember, he descended the throne and was put on a cross to pay for your selfish desires. He died to set you free from sin's rule over you. So you can say no to your desires, turning from desires into demands. Because you have a ruler, you don't need another ruler. And this ruler is so gracious to you that he's freed you up so that you can have the spirit, so that you can powerfully say no to these desires. Where you can attack your sinful desires, where you can attack your inordinate desires, and by the power of the spirit filling you, you can rip them to shreds with your hands and he reigns now on a throne in heaven right next to his father and the truth is all your good desires are ultimately fulfilled in the trinity father son and spirit and so if you desire comfort it's a good desire 
but God is a God of all comfort. If you desire peace, Jesus, we saw last month, is the prince of it. You desire to be loved, and the Father knows you completely and fully loves you. And Romans says the Spirit pours the Father's love into our hearts. So ultimately, this isn't looking to Samson as an example. This is looking to Samson as this is who we are. This is what we do. This is how we fell. This is how we desire. This is how we rage. And then this is how the real rescuer comes for all of us. The one, Jesus, who is crazy gifted. It's cool to tear apart lions. I think that's amazing. But I think I've matured as a man. I would say I'm now more impressed with construction than destruction. And Jesus comes along and he's like, broken eyes. Not now. (laughs) Crazy gifted, Jesus is. And, and, and. All the character in the world. All the character in the world. All the heart, all the compassion all the love, all the warmth, all the strength for all the good ways to protect and care and serve. The answer to your escalation of retaliation is to step away to the God of grace. Let's respond. Father, we ask for that. We ask for you to work in us, transform our hearts, Liven us to your grace and mercy to us. Give us the strength to step away and pray and see the place you've made to escape from this temptation or the place that you've given us to say no and to experience your grace and get away from that cycle of retaliation of whoever it's with. grace and then extend it to each Lord. In the reconciling, powerful name of Jesus.